the moon, the sun, the stars, and all the vastness in between. There is nothing so rawly human as the desire to reach above us and grasp at what we see overhead as our unearthly watchers. There has always been that space above us, and there likely always will be. Reaching to explore great heavenly heights, we often seek to conquer further and further elevations. But what lies above our earthly base is not always willing to be surmounted. Broadcasting on WCRX 88.1 FM, directly from Chicago's underground, I'm Peyton Zignego with Channel Vale, lifting up that which divides the known from the unknown. We shall always have one constant companion, no matter where we go in this world. The very sky and its heavenly bodies that greet us each morning and sing us to sleep each night. It's a fixed point around which all of humanity's past has revolved, and that which will watch the downfall of us all. Rather uncaringly, I shall add. I mean, if I've learned anything, it's that those that dwell above us don't have much stake in our day-to-day -day lives and therefore don't care all that much about it. I mean, the moon and sun are great listeners, don't get me wrong. They just don't provide the best advice, which I've learned in my few talking therapy sessions with the moon. Regardless, there is always something that we can be sure of. And that is, no matter how far we stray from our place in this world, the sky above will always have a home for us, and a mark that will never change place. I've tried to bring that up to some of our very upset interview guests, but honestly it seems like that just makes them more upset. I asked Nadia why that was, and she just squinted at me and told me, You should be more aware of why that's a foolish question. Unfortunately, that did little to help me, so I'm sitting back at square one. Speaking of Nadia, she's back in the studio with us again. I'm delighted to have her once again glaring at me from her desk on the other side of the studio glass. That is perhaps my real constant comfort. If I know one thing for certain, it's that field reporter Nadia will not let me broadcast without the fear that our eyes will meet during it and I'll know I've said something wrong. At least, I know I'm being held accountable. That's proper journalism. In an additional act of proper journalism, I asked Nadia if she wanted to be interviewed about her day off. I thought it would be such a fun thing to ask her about, but the look she gave me... Yeesh! Talk about colder than the moon's empty gaze. It doesn't matter, however, as I've got something even better that I could talk about. Sorry, Nadia. <laughs> so... Last week, we received a package containing a recorded statement from an unknown individual about his experience with an eccentric colleague. Included with the materials were a few scientific papers detailing some of the experiments that the two conducted. Now, I'm never the first to claim I understand science, but it was all a little above my pay grade. What is my pay grade, I hear you ask? Well, I am certified in pinecone crafts, things that go bump in the night identification, and light radiation experimentation. None of which are particularly helpful when it comes to intense written experiments and the art of deciphering all that jargon. Since I am a fantastic journalist able to admit my faults when I have them, I reached out again to my trio of out-of-network scientists and asked if they could give me any more context. I was sent a letter back that said no, in three different handwritings and in three different pen colors. 
it was very sweet of them to collaborate like that, so I'm glad I could bring them together anyway. Now, before you get upset with me for accepting no as an answer, I was asking them to confirm whether or not reanimating the dead was possible, so if they were being monitored, I can't blame them. And before you get even more upset with me for accepting no as an answer and for letting government monitoring interfere with my quest to answer all that has none, I bring you towards a much more interesting something. For now, at least. I don't bother people for absolutely no reason, I bother them for multiple, concurring reasons. You see, while Nadia may not have wanted to be interviewed about her day off, she did come back with something that needed to be spoken about. Even on her days off, work still manages to hunt Nadia down. Nadia brought back from her day off a journal. This journal was found in a field, missing a few pages, but still mostly intact. And splattered with a mystery fluid, our favorite. It had been passed around through a few hands before coming to rest in Nadia's, but here we are, and I think it's best suited that we reveal the contents. Besides, I love a good looking into someone else's life, especially when that life mentions something unfounded in our narrow grasp of reality. This journal had been aptly named the Joyce Armstrong Fragments after its author and the state in which it was found. Easy enough. With it now expectantly on my news desk, we got to work putting together its story. So first things first, we needed a clear answer on what our mystery fluid was. So off the journal was sent to our lovely scientist panel, along with those Herbert West reports, which they disliked, as I just mentioned. Firstly, I wanted a conclusive answer as to what the journal was splattered with. The answer? Blood, of course. I'm sure that was an easy enough thing for our dear resident scientists to figure out. Secondly, it was asked, naturally, whose blood it was. A very natural course of questioning. The panel they did matched what they had of Joyce Armstrong, the author himself, uh, concluding that it was his blood. One of the scientists left a comment on the report in sparkly blue pen ink that read, Bleeding all over your own journal, it's like you don't even want to be taken seriously. I appreciate their efforts, and I'm glad our working relationship seems to have improved, especially because their return report did not include any comments about how they don't want to be contacted again. Definitely a positive. You'd be surprised how many of those we get. Or maybe you wouldn't be. It, well, either way, this Joyce Armstrong fragment had a great deal for Nadia and I to sink our many teeth into, so we are more than excited to get started working on this report. We had a lot of alleged reports to corroborate. Normally, we are a little underwhelmed with our findings, but things were surprisingly not all that hard to look into. Not that we like the easy way out. Nadia and I just never get an easy win, is all. Joyce Armstrong, the namesake and author for the Fragments, was a fairly easy figure to identify in his respective community. He was a pilot, and seemingly well-respected one at that. The contents of his journal reflect his piloting experience. We were unable to track down the man himself, but, well, uh, we'll get there. Secondly, we had a handful of alleged events that he makes mention of, all of which had to do with fellow pilots, and all of which had to be looked into by us. We are truthful reporters, after all. The first was the plane crash of a Lieutenant Myrtle. According to Joyce Armstrong's journal, he was found without his head after he and his aircraft fell from 30,000 feet. This was proven true, although his head was never found, and many assumed it was simply lost in the crash. A note from Joyce Armstrong that raised a flag was that Myrtle's body was covered in an oil-like substance. 
Another notable mention was the death of a pilot named Hay Connor. Connor was also involved in a plane crash and was reported to have died of heart failure. We found this to be true from what reports we were able to dig up. As far as we saw, it is widely believed that he did die of heart disease, but our Joyce Armstrong wasn't convinced. He writes that Connor died of fright, as his companion who was with him when he passed told Joyce Armstrong that Connor was shaking profusely when found in his aircraft and couldn't get a cohesive word out. Joyce Armstrong also alleges that Connor had a healthy heart. None of this information we could confirm, but we're taking the author's strong opinions about Connor into account. He proceeds to note a few other crashes in which the aircrafts were found, but not the pilots, most of which we were able to find substantial evidence for. Oh, look at us, sounding like real professionals that we are. Nadia, are you proud of this? I got an eye roll and a hesitant thumbs up. I'll take that as a yes. Okay, okay. Right. We had one more report. This one was from several of those who knew Joyce Armstrong. After the unfortunate, but albeit not entirely bizarre, deaths of some of his fellow airmen, our author was known to carry a shotgun with him when he went up into the air. This practice is most definitely not a common one, nor recommended in any capacity, but he flew solo and was reportedly a strange eccentric, so make of that what you will. Now for the contents of the journal itself. Here is where we get into the meaty bits. We are missing the first two pages, but it seems based on where it begins that he's making mention of credentials and catching us up a bit on a few of those aerial accidents that we spoke of. His account begins on the 15th of September, early in the morning. Full transparency here, I know very little about these specks of planes and what makes a good one. His detail about his plane is completely lost on me, unfortunately. Nadia hates heights, and so she too wasn't much help when it came to deciphering what makes a good plane. The scientists didn't seem like they were of much help in this department either. A great deal of minds with a great deal of air between them. <laughs> anyway, he's a monoplane pilot. That's what we got. This also means he was fully alone in the air for the duration of his account and statement, so we cannot conceivably find another soul to corroborate with, unfortunately. Though, again, not entirely unusual when it comes to what we cover. Joyce Armstrong's flight on the day of the report was one he had been planning for a significant time. He was eager to exceed the 30,000-foot mark and explore open air. An air jungle, as he called it. Joyce Armstrong seemed acutely aware of an unseen aerial danger that lurked out of view in the seemingly open and empty space above us. According to those that knew him, he was known to ask other pilots what they thought the biggest danger to them was, but he never answered himself and always seemed dissatisfied when they replied with normal piloty things like engine failure or hypothermia. Despite his clear fear goals set much higher, Joyce Armstrong reported that he took great care to avoid those mundane malfunctions and was dressed and prepared properly for his summit. His account of his September 15th flight began with liftoff from his hangar and reports of some heavy rainfall that didn't seem to impede his beginning ascent. His solo flight was marked by spots of dark clouds and dragging winds. Again, nothing that stopped his reliable craft. The chill of high altitudes set in, but upwards he kept going. Despite less than desirable conditions at the beginning, he reaches the break in the clouds and is eventually alone above them, with only the shining sun and tens of meters to watch. Still, everything runs smoothly for the first three hours of his flight, and despite a little reported engine trouble, nothing is stopping his conquering of the winds and clouds. 
It's at this mark that it seems he has entered his jungle proper, and finally those previously unfounded remarks of a hidden predator begin to find grasp around this account. Of course, while Joyce Armstrong recounts his views of the clouds from above, I can only make comments on them from below. And right now, my view of the clouds are being limited by a tree branch of all things. I set up my security camera system so I can see the sky at all times, and yet here we are being blocked by a rogue branch. Nadia, I thought we solved this. <sighs> One moment, I apologize for this, but I need to step away from my news desk to right nature's wrongs. I cannot conceive of a world where I continue to talk about the wonders of the skies without being able to see them for myself. WCRX 88.1 FM's Channel Vale will be right back with a less antsy Peyton Zignego. Channel Vale is back, still broadcasting from underground Chicago with Peyton Zignego on WCRX 88.1 FM. That is so much better. <sighs> I didn't spend precious station money on a security system to not have it perfectly positioned on the sky and clouds. How else am I supposed to know what the weather is like or what messages the sky has in store for me? Nadia, we should really consider hiring someone to watch the cameras and make sure I'm being properly enriched by their placement. Finally, I have my proper eye on the sky as our pilot, Joyce Armstrong, had his though he was actually in the vast grasp of our above, and I am woefully below the Earth's surface, but tomato-tomato. <clears throat> ah, well, Joyce Armstrong was still near reaching 40,000 feet above the Earth when finally his monoplane craft began to show signs of engine issues, perhaps reaching her limit. He had greater goals in mind, so he pressed it onwards. He notices, however, that something whips past him and explodes into little pieces near his airship. This strange phenomenon, he writes off, as a passing meteor, one of those little bits of space rock that gets eviscerated in our atmosphere. Nothing of concern to him or his craft, that he continues to push steadily upwards, despite its engine hesitance. However, as he marks their summit height of 41,300 feet, he still sees nothing else of note besides blue clouds and ribbons of sunlight through crystal clear air. No other present dangers or inhabitants of that air jungle he was so convinced was up there. At the critical moment he started to question himself, the air changed. From clear to smoky, the taste of oil coats his lips as he realizes he is now navigating his plane through what can only be described as very fine particles of matter. Not life, no, but perhaps the basis for it, or the remains of what life could have existed. But the oily air gives way to something else, something larger than a great cathedral's form but only making itself present by the faint outline of itself. He describes it like a soap bubble, marking its existence by faint lines of color and reflections of light, pulsating in shades of light pink and green against the bluest sky. The creatures form a fleet of drifting green tendrils and iridescent refractions, as if they were creatures made of the sunlight through a stained glass window. They were apparently composed of something comparable to airy jelly, a certain buoyancy keeping them adrift in the open air. The fleet of living colored light was not alone in the air, however. Joyce Armstrong next recounts the appearance of a faster, more nimble being. These were smoke-like and gray aerial serpents that sped past him and twisted around through the air with the grace of dancers. 
If the first beings were the result of light through prisms, these were creatures of sun dancing through drifting smoke. Despite their seeming intangibility, they were some thirty feet long and swirling above and around him. Despite now flying with unknown beings of massive proportions, Joyce Armstrong didn't seem to be particularly fearful of any of them. He had found his aerial jungle of the heavens, but surely these were not the predators that he had been so convinced would be a danger to him. No, nothing shone with any intent of harm quite like the newly approaching shape of a third creature. Comprised of the same, almost intangible jelly of the living stained glass, this being flickered shades of purple, even as it remained partially imperceptible against the blueness of the empty air in which it drifted. It was marked with clear eyes and a strange beak that resembled that of a vulture. This creature did not give the uncaring aura that the others did, and seemed to narrow in on Joyce Armstrong and his plane, coming to match pace with his craft. Cautious as he was, he made the motion to dip his craft lower in the air, losing altitude to avoid crossing paths with the thing. Despite the effort to avoid it, a purple-hued tendril came down and reached around the nose of the plane, grabbing hold of it with apparent strength and defiance of the strange composition of the thing. A jerk of the craft had the propeller cut into the jelly-like flesh and made the escape from the grasp relatively easy. This only seemed to make the thing upset, rightfully so, as getting a tendril cut into by an airplane propeller doesn't seem the most pleasant of feelings. A tendril found its way into the cockpit and wrapped itself around Joyce Armstrong's waist, threatening to pull him from the craft and into the death trap of open air. Now, here that shotgun comes in handy. Joyce Armstrong notes that part of the creature's biology was a collection of bubble-like organs on its sides. This is where he aims and hits his mark, popping one of the bubbles with a shotgun blast that throws the creature off and forces it to release its hold of the pilot. An opportunity of escape is not missed, and he pushes his plane into a nosedive back below the safety net of clouds and low altitude. His plane was fully struggling by now, as I imagine he was, but the two land slightly in a place to refuel. Joyce Armstrong seemed to have written his account thus far at this point. It's clear from the wording that he landed and wrote everything down to mark his findings. It's also clear that he has every intention of going back up to those heights and into that jungle on the return flight. He makes a comment that he needs the physical evidence, a sample of the creature's jelly-like composition if he is to prove what he saw to others. How could he so quickly escape a harrowing situation only to throw himself back into it without so much as a second thought? I'm not sure. Either way, he remarks in his journal that he doesn't believe he'll run back into that menacing purple being. He seemed convinced that there couldn't be that many of them. Like a true jungle, there are less predators than prey, right? He continues, but the page is ripped out. There is one final entry in the journal before its end, one that was not lost or torn out. The entry is short and written hastily in pencil, whereas the rest of the journal entries had been done neatly in careful pen script. The final written words of Joyce Armstrong occurred in the air at 43,000 feet. I won't be returning to the Earth. There's three of them, cornering me. And then nothing. Joyce Armstrong himself hasn't been seen since he refueled. His plane would be found shattered, and this journal would be found in fragments and pieced together. But as for the pilot himself, nothing. No trace of his physical self, just his words and the final hasty scrawlings of a hunted and doomed man. We, of course, attempted to find him ourselves, but we found nothing. Not even reports of parts that could be in any way tied back to him. He truly vanished into thin air.
In the end, I suppose he did finally discover what it was he had been so afraid of. Perhaps he proved himself finally right to all those who had doubted his thoughts on what had happened to his fellow pilots. Now we will do our best to keep our eyes and ears open, as we always do, to see if we can't find any updates on Joyce Armstrong and his possible whereabouts. Though it's clearly likely we may never fully know. I offered to see if we can't go up into the air ourselves on a discovery adventure, but Nadia shut that down faster than I could even get the words out of my mouth. She knew what I was going to say. I don't ask for a lot, Nadia. The least we could do is go up and have some fun in a rental plane. Though I don't think that would be too good for her fear of heights. Uh, okay, I guess maybe I can see her side of things. Uh, well, we are better equipped to watch the sky from below, anyhow. Just as our ancestors and our future lineages will do. The sky and its possible inhabitants above us will always be above us. And isn't that a comfort? Fear of heights or not, the great heavens above us will always be. We came from the sun and stars, and one day we will be consumed wholly by them again. Before that, though, we have seemingly infinite time to look up and watch in wonder. The night has tucked itself in around us, hasn't it? What a lovely reoccurrence that we can share with the entirety of ourselves, past and present. May you enjoy this evening's gentle grasp. Though I suppose, before I let you go fully back into the moon's gaze, I have one more thing to remind you of. Though you can hear us first on WCRX 88.1 FM, we also upload every broadcast retroactively onto any streaming service of your choice as a podcast. From broadcast to podcast, you can now hear Channel Vale wherever. Just pick your service of choice and look up Channel Vale, that's Vale spelled V-E-I-L, and you will be led into a collection of all of our past episodes, each one waiting eagerly for you to re-listen or listen for the first time just as I wait eagerly to bring you the news each week. I do hope you'll return to hear my voice live again next week. Broadcasting as always, from Chicago's Underground, this has been Channel Vale. Tonight's newscast was brought to you by WCRX 88.1 FM and The Horror of the Heights by Arthur Conan Doyle. I've been Peyton Zignego, letting the veil between you and the world of the unknown once again slide back into place. For now. Thank you so very much for listening. <laughs>